Welcome to our 34th episode of Two Tankers and a Cat. We are your host, um, Charlie. And this is Russell. Well, Russell, I think the first thing we're going to do is give a shout out to uh, our in-the-field reporter, Brittany. <laughs> I know, that was pretty sweet. If you guys don't know, uh, check our Facebook. Uh, Brittany, my daughter, is a flight attendant and she went down to Havana, Cuba. And she did a report on the SU-100 uh, Soviet uh, tank destroyer that Castro used uh, as his command vehicle and supposedly, you know, their side says Castro shot a ship out in the bay that caused it to uh, start to sink and they actually ran it aground. Wow. So, you know, did happen, you know what, let's do an episode and we'll let everybody else decide. There you go. Now, of course, the Americans are like, nope, never happened. <laughs> never happened. My personal belief, yeah, I think he did. I think he did shoot it. Okay, um, like I said, well, this episode, we're going to talk about the SU-100 tank, uh, Russell. And I know there's very little about this tank destroyer. So, please tell us about it. Yeah, the lineage of the SU-100, one of the most feared tank destroyers of the war, can be clearly established straight from the huge production line of the T-34 back in 1942. Both the T-34 and the KV-1 were deadly opponents for most German tanks at the time until the arrival of the Tiger on the battlefield in late 1942, although in limited numbers. Yeah, they didn't have a lot of Tigers. The situation worsened with the coming just in time for the Battle of Kursk of the new Panther tank. Uh, It became clear that Their long-range knockout power was devastating, and Soviet confidence over its own standard 76.2mm, or 3-inch gun, shattered as it was unable to pierce German armor at safe range. Now, we've talked about the Panther tank and how they sent 200 to the Kursk, but most of them broke down. They only had 40. But those 40s, with their long guns, were just tearing up these Soviet T-34s and KVs, and they were like, the German or uh, Soviet generals at the time were like, "Uh uh-uh, we need something that'll hit back. However, the few 52-K 85mm anti-aircraft guns available then, newly provided on the battlefield at Kursk, proved lethal as anti-tank weapons in the style of the German 88. They took a page out of the German book and they said, okay, if we're not pinning these guys with our tanks, let's get our 85 millimeter anti-aircraft gun and start shooting these tanks. And and it was working really well, kind of like the Germans did with the 88. Sure. After several reports, the general staff specified that a specially crafted self-propelled gun carriage was to be built around this high-velocity gun. So, military planners, you know, and the generals and the, you know, the planners directed the design bureau of both uh, General uh, Graben and uh, General uh, Petrov to modify this 85 millimeter anti-tank air, or anti-aircraft gun uh, for use as an anti-tank weapon. So Petrov's uh, bureau uh, developed the D slash 5 85 millimeter gun, though much too large for a T-34 turret 
It could be mounted in the chassis of the SU-122 self-propelled gun to create a tank destroyer. This was done, and the SU-85 tank destroyer went into production. By early 1944, the SU-85M came into production with a new sloped casemate designed for the SU-100 and a reworked ball mantlet. It also shared the largely produced commander cupola of the T-3485. It was a stopgap tank assessing some parts of the SU-100 model, which mounted a new 100 millimeter. So they designed the equipment, uh, or they designed to equip the SU-100 tank destroyer with the D-10S, a 100 millimeter uh, high velocity, very long barreled version of the D-5S gun. So if you take a look at like the SU-85s, they had the little 85, Mm -hmm. which was a great gun. Yeah. But they're like, let's use this 100 millimeter. Just step up a little bit. And this thing was super long, but we'll get into the width and stats here in a little bit. By mid-1944, the SU-85 already proved unable to penetrate the sloped armor of the late Panthers and the Tigers. And, now, and we're talking about Tiger twos and stuff like that yeah. and the new Panthers that were not breaking down all the time. Sure. So the SU-85 was having a tough time, so they grabbed these SU-100s. At the same time, the T-3485, which was equipped with the same gun, but with a 360-degree arc of fire, started arriving in mass on the front. And we have to do an episode on the T-3485. Oh, I agree. That's always been one of my favorite in-game Uh and we're talking about World of Tanks, sorry. World of Tanks, yeah. Mm-hmm. The SU-85's days were counted, and despite the arrival of the new improved SU-85M, a new design based on a better anti-aircraft gun was needed to keep the edge on the battlefield in terms of tank hunters. So when they talk about the SU-85M, what the difference is, is it had more armor in the front. They were like, eh. The su 85 like I said, is basically a beefed up version of the SU-85 with increased frontal armor thickness from 45 millimeters uh, to uh, 75 millimeters. That's a pretty good improvement. Yeah. That can save it from yeah. shots that would have been lethal for the SU-85. It also uh, had a gun or an 85 millimeter that could use the APCR shell um, for increased lethality. So they were they had... They had a bunch of these SU-85s, and they're like, okay, we're going to up-armor it, and we're going to give it the APCR rounds that's going to be able to penetrate. But most of these guys are like, mm, let's look at this 100 millimeter. Tell us more, Russ. Yeah, closely related to the SU-85, the SU-100 incorporated much of its design revolving around the new D-10 100 millimeter anti-tank gun. Mm-hmm. I know. That's a gun that'll put some hurt on you. That, that's a gun. The chief designer was Eli Gorlitsky, who created the 138 in February 1944. The prototype designed to test several 100 millimeter mounts. Oh, okay, so they came up with this 138, and that was just to test it. Only one, the D-10S from the Constructors Bureau of Artillery Factory Number 9, was retained. It showed excellent performance, being able to pierce 120 millimeter armor at up to 2,000 meters away, and the sloped 85 millimeter frontal armor of the Panther at 1,500 meters. So they found out this gun was able to, you know, penetrate what about 
4.72 inches of armor. Um, that's that's from, incredible. From, you know, almost 2,200 yards away. The sloped armor of the Panther, they could pin that at 1,500 meters. In fact, this gun and post-war derivants equipped the T-54 and the T-55 Russian main battle tanks and was in service with many armies around the world. In fact, um, when we were down in, I think it was Fort Bliss that we saw a T-55 that they had captured from Mm -hmm. Iraq. So, you know, even the Iraqis were using it back then when we were Desert Storm. Sure. So this gun was so good that they're like, no, no, we're going to keep this gun and we'll put it on our newer tanks. The SU-100 was built at the Ural Heavy Machinery Factory, Euromash, with a thicker frontal glacis, which rose to 75 millimeters, or 2.95 inches, and a newly designed casemate with a more pronounced slope, and which sacrificed some habitability. So they've put this gun in and sloped the armor, but they're having to get these let's say smaller people <laughs> kind of jammed in there just to, you know, be able to shoot and drive this thing. Yeah. So probably, you know, like most Soviet tanks that we've studied, were not built for comfort. No, very, very cramped quarters. You know what? It, to be put in that and know yeah. that you could be set afire yeah. and stuff like that. That could very well be your tomb. Yep. You know, we, we hear tons and tons of stories of a Sherman getting hit and getting caught on fire, and then, you know, everybody bails out. Yeah. And they go to another tank. However, it was equipped with a new, well-conceived commander cupola, and the crew compartment was cooler due to a second ventilator. Mass production was approved in September 1944, so the SU-100 missed Operation Bagration, but arrived in time for the final offensive on Germany and Berlin, while others participated in the Romanian and Hungarian offensive. In 1944, they were really pushing that. So, it was late in the war when it started its World War II combat history. You know what, Russ? Tell us a little bit about the combat history. The SU-100 arrived in operational units in October 1944 and immediately became popular with Russian crews. It was able to defeat almost every German tank on the battlefield, only to be outmatched in 1945 by the King Tiger. Well, I mean, let's face it, the King Tiger from the front is just solid steel. Sure. It became instrumental in fending off German units during Operation Frühlingerwachen at Lake Balaton in Hungary in March of 1945, and it helped the Great Offensive in Eastern Prussia. Some were even found fighting in the streets of Berlin due to their awesome bunker-piercing capabilities despite the fact that they were never designed for infantry support. Many were transferred to Asia in August of 1945 for the large offensive in Manchuria. Now, the offensive in Manchuria was the Soviets helping the Allies uh, kicking out the Japanese puppet government in China. Um, We've talked about that in our Japanese tanks. If you want to go back and listen to, uh, I think, the Chikai or Chiho, what we were talking about. But like the Su-85, they lacked any secondary weapons, and they were conceived to fight in coordination with other covering units to deal with infantry and aircraft. And that makes sense. You know, it didn't have secondary guns. It didn't have machine gun. Sure. So, you know, it was with the infantry and that, and when the infantry ran into a tank, 
the SU-100 would come up, wipe it out. You know, if they ran into a bunker, the SU would come up, wipe it out. But if there was aircraft above or, you know, infantry was charging it, yeah. their infantry and their air, Just, any, any aircraft yeah. units would help. Just kind of like a sitting duck without the extra support. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Russ, uh, let's get to my favorite part, the stats. Yeah, there were approximately 2,335-plus built of the SU-100s. They weighed about 31.6 tons or about almost 70,000 pounds. Okay, that's a heavy tank. It is. They were about 9.45 meters long, and that comes out to about 30 feet long. Now, that's from barrel to rear. Yes, yes, complete length. Proving that that's a Uh, a long gun. Yeah, it is a long gun. They were about 3 meters wide or 9 foot 10 inches wide. And they stood about 2.25 meters high or 7 foot 5 inches high. But shorter than my lead. Shorter than the lead still, (laughs) yes. What kind of crew? It had a crew of four, which like we said was probably pretty cramped inside. Yeah, with that sloped armor and stuff, yeah. And speaking of the armor, the front armor was 75 millimeters or three inches thick. It had 45 millimeter armor on the sides or 1.77 inches thick. And it also had 45 millimeter armor on the rear. The roof of the vehicle had 20 millimeters of armor or 0.78 inches. So 20 millimeters on the roof might have stopped some, you know, anti-aircraft yeah. or aircraft fire. Yeah, yeah. But still, I mean, it wouldn't have taken much to Uh-oh. drop something on it to Mm-mm. go right on through that. The main armament of the tank destroyer was a was the 100mm D-10S gun. It had a Karkov Model V2 engine. It was a V12 diesel engine that had 500 horsepower. The power-to-weight ratio was 15.8 horsepower per ton. Not, not bad. Not bad for a beast like that. It had a Christie suspension. Uh, again, Christie's still waiting on his check. He's still waiting on that check, isn't he? <laughs> He's still probably going to wait a little while longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It had an operational range of about 200 to 250 kilometers, which is about 200 miles. All right. So it had real good range. Yes. It, it, you know, and, and in support of infantry and any aircraft and stuff like that, pretty good. What kind of speed? It could get up to about 48 kilometers per hour or 30 miles per hour. Nice. And that's probably about average for for a tank destroyer like that. Wow. Good stuff. So that brings us to uh, Castro's SU-100 and the Bay of Pigs. Now, Brittany down in Havana, and she said it was a beautiful country, but she probably wouldn't go back. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right, Russell. We're going to talk a little bit about the Bay of Pigs. We're not going to get in detail. Again, this is very, very good stuff. We suggest you, the listener, go and check this out for yourself. Yes, Read up. Please if do. If you don't know what happened to the Bay of Pigs, we're going to lightly, kind of like uh, people call us the sugar for frosted yeah, flakes. Yeah. Of, we're going to pique your interest. We're going to pique your interest. Uh, but feel free to research this because more and more information has been released and now we're starting to see what really went on. The Bay of Pigs invasion was a failed attempt by U.S.-sponsored Cuban exiles to reverse Fidel Castro's Cuban revolution. And it began with a military invasion of northern Cuba. A Central Intelligence Agency-sponsored rebel group, Brigade 2506, 
attempted an invasion on April 17th of 1961 that lasted just three days. Brigade 2506 was a counter-revolutionary military group made up mostly of Cuban exiles who had traveled to the United States after Castro's takeover, but also included some U.S. military personnel. And again, we're saying you should go check on this yourself. (laughs) If the CIA is uh, currently listening, (laughs) go America. Trained and funded by the CIA, Brigade 2506 fronted the armed wing of the Democratic Revolutionary Front, or the DRF, and intended to overthrow the increasingly communist government of Fidel Castro. Launched from Guatemala and Nicaragua, the invading force was defeated within three days by the Cuban Revolutionary Armed Forces under the direct command of Castro. We're going to talk a little bit more about this, but yeah, Castro was leading this, but uh, go go ahead, Russ. I don't want to give anything away. (laughs) It was after the Cuban Revolution that Castro forged strong economic links with the Soviet Union against which the United States primarily engaged in the Cold War. U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower was very concerned at the direction Castro's government was taking, and in March 1960, he allocated $13.1 million to the CIA to plan Castro's overthrow. The CIA proceeded to organize the operation with the aid of various Cuban counter-revolutionary forces training brigade 2506 in Guatemala. So this goes back to even Eisenhower. So he comes up and he's like, you know what, I'm going to give you guys $13 million. And and we're talking about $1960, which is quite a bit. Oh, it is. And we're going to train you guys. We're going to, you know, outfit you guys. And then you're going to go and take back Cuba. Uh, Go ahead. Over 1,400 paramilitaries divided into five infantry battalions and one paratrooper battalion, assembled in Guatemala before setting out for Cuba by boat on April 13th of 1961. Two days later, on April 15th, eight CIA-supplied B-26 bombers attacked Cuban airfields and then returned to the U.S. On the night of April 16th, the main invasion landed at a beach named Playa Giron in the Bay of Pigs. So we know you know, why and how, but Russ, what happened? The Cuban government had been warned by senior KGB agents, so Castro decided to take personal control of the operation. All right. (laughs) So uh, they've been spending all these years training these guys, and the KGB knows it. Well, the, sure. The, and I don't have the information of how the KGB knew <laughs> and what everything, you know, the exact, you know, hey, your fields are going to be bombed. And when your fields are bombed, they're going to come into this bay. But anyway, the KGB goes up to Castro and says, hey, buddy, you're, you're about to get invaded. Talk about the four ships. The four ships named the Atlantico, the Caribe, Rio Escondido, and the Houston And additionally, the invasion force had two old landing craft infantry ships, the Blagar and the Barbara J from World War II that were part of the CIA's ghost ship fleet and served as command ships for the invasion. Now, most of these ships were uh, flying under the Liberian flag, and they borrowed these and uh, put on new flags. You know, kind of shuffled everything. And uh, But anyway, go ahead. 
The crews of the supply ships were Cuban, while the crews of the landing craft infantry ships were Americans, and they were borrowed by the CIA from the Military Sea Transportation Service. So they've got the Cuban, you know, the guys to overthrow, the Cubans to overthrow Castro, and the supply ships, you know, the big ships like the Houston and uh, the Atlantico. But the landing crafts were borrowed from this military sea transport service. And you're like, uh, wow, wait a minute. So the invasion happens and Commander Fidel Castro's first priority was sinking the ships that invaded the Cuban waters. Uh, The USS Houston, an American uh, troop and supply vessel, was damaged by several uh, rockets. But uh, Castro himself uh, started shooting it from his command vehicle, which was this Su-100 tank destroyer. The Houston's captain then intentionally beached uh, the Houston on the western side of the bay, and uh, Castro and his troops also attacked the two landing crafts and other supply vehicles they had brought the brigade in to the Bay of Pigs with. Uh, they hit the USS. Uh, well. I, again, I hate saying USS because it wasn't flying an American flag. Uh, but this uh, Rio, how do you say that name? Escondido. Which was loaded with aviation fuel, causing a terrific explosion uh, before it sank like a stone. So here they are. They're, the Castro's on the beach. The Houston's there. He's firing this SU-100. Hits the Houston. It starts to sink. You know, they're shooting rockets all over. And then they hit that uh, other ship with fuel, and it explodes, and it just sinks right to the bottom. Wow! Again, we're 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 we've teased you a little bit yeah. with this information, and we want you to research it yourself. There's a ton more. I mean, there's pages and pages of newly unclassified documents and stuff like that that's online now, and you can research it. It is definitely worth it because the battles got really hard so you're talking about just three days of fighting but could you imagine being in a tank destroyer on the beach sitting there (laughs) shooting you know at ships that's incredible what do we always say you use what you got that's right well anyway if you guys haven't seen britney's video they have the command tank that castro was in and went the one he shot with the houston with and uh get a chance watch that video it's on facebook And, uh, again, me and Russ would love to go see Cuba. We're not saying anything against the uh, Cuban people or anything like that. She said it was a beautiful country, uh, great music, had a bunch of really old cars, you know, like 57 Chevys and stuff like that. And it was like, that's amazing. Yeah. And, uh, this was a pretty fun episode, but I think that brings us to the closing. So let's go ahead and give our Patreon shout outs there, Russ. Yeah, we want to shout out to Andy Crow. He's still with us. And also Born Ben. And my girlfriend, finally, Christy McCarty. Yay All for me. Right. Yep. Uh, Kevin Shin. Uh, he's the man. And we also want to shout out to Mark Drake. And, uh, and ODS Thero. Yep. He's still with us. And Kyle Montgomery, you can't forget him. Yeah. And, of course, everybody's favorite, Rick Schmidt. Ricky. <laughs> we appreciate it, guys. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, we got mad love for you. Oh, yeah. So, um, the last thing I wanted to bring up was uh, I went to a uh, 
Dungeons and Dragons, kind of like military medieval shop, and it's called it's in Pittsburgh, Kansas, and it's right off a, uh, I think it's West Fifth Street. Yeah, on West, West and it, Fifth and Street, and it's called the Ogre's Lair. So if you guys get a chance, uh, go over to uh, Facebook and look for Ogre's Lair, Pittsburgh, Kansas, and tell them, hey, you know, send some love. I don't care if you're in New Zealand or the Ukraine. <laughs> Just message them and say, hey, two tankers and a cat gave you a shout out. Heck yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and if you're really nice to them, they might give you a discount if I, you say I, our name. There you go. And uh, might mail you something. I think they ship hey, all over the world, too. Sweet. So if you get a chance, go check out the Ogre's Lair. They got a bunch of uh, little memes and stuff like that if you're a gamer guy. So, um, but uh, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. I believe it does. All right, well, this is Charlie. And this is Russell. As always, happy tanking and have a great week. <laughs>